0: This episode is brought to you by my free training, the three legal and tax mistakes made by new and experienced business owners and how you can avoid them. Here's the thing, there's a few key things we've all gotta do to make sure we unfuck our biz. I've seen all the mistakes and I know how to help you get past them. So here's what I want you to do go to www.unfuckyourbiz.com, sign up for the free training, watch it, and do at least one of the homework assignments I share in the masterclass. Promise? Okay, now let's dive into the episode. Well, hello there, friend. On today's podcast, I'm going to be bringing an official end to the money series. If you're relatively new to the podcast, my guests and I have been sharing information and resources for the last few months now, I think starting back in like early December, all about money. So everything from increasing sales to bookkeeping to taxes. So lots and lots of good stuff. These topics, I know, sometimes can seem like a total drag, at least like the back tax ones, I know for sure getting more money, making more sales, maybe a little bit less of a drag, but they are critical to our business success. And I have lots of fun friends who make these very stressful topics sound very exciting, or at least, you know, not so shitty, to be perfectly honest. So today I wanted to recap this money series by rounding up 10 of the top tips my guests and I have shared over the last few months by and also sorry, also giving you the next step to take um after this money series, which is unfuck your finance. If You're on my email list, you've been getting information about this. I also talked about it on my Tuesday podcast episode. so go back, pause this episode, go back, and listen to Tuesdays if you haven't listened to it already because unfuck your finance is only going to be available this week, so. Before we dive in, a little bit more information on that. This is a course that I created for my Unfuck Your Biz alumni. So the doors will be opening to Unfuck Your Biz again in a few months. After you go through my full Unfuck Your Biz course, which is my signature program, you get an invitation to join my alumni membership. And as an alumni member, you get all sorts of really amazing, exclusive, advanced-level content one of those programs I just created, it's called Unfuck Your Finance. So normally only open to alumni. I decided to launch it this week for the one and only time to the general public. So hop over to my website, check it out for all the information. If you have questions, DM me at Braden Adam Drake. If you're on my email list, you'll get all of the information. Um, or you can go to www.bradendrake.com forward slash UFYF for all the information on the program. So lots of ways you can check that out also in the show notes. Let's get started here. So kicking it off, we have financial behavioralist Jacquette Timmons, who's going to teach us or who taught us already on um, how to identify competitor pricing and how we can use that information to set fair prices. After all, the first step is to making money is selling the things that bring in the money. So check out this clip from Jaquette. And Suzanne asks, everyone tells me to do my research on competitors, but how do you get competitor pricing? Do you catfish that shit? These are her (laughs) words.
1: (laughs) Oh
2: my God. I totally love that. (laughs) Well, I guess if you, um, if your competitors don't have their pricing on their website, that would be a one way of doing it. Um, but I wanna actually take a step back and I, I wanna ask, ask Stephanie, to, or I'm sorry, Suzanne, to consider a different question, which is what is the benefit of really knowing what the competitor is, is charging? Because everybody, you know, one of the things that I always talk about when I talk about pricing is that while the question, what should I charge for this is a universal one, the answer is very personal. And so you could have two wedding, you know, planners side by side, and for a variety of reasons, what they are charging for what they're bringing to the table is going to be different. So if you're doing it to just have a ballpark numerically of what people are doing that might be beneficial but you don't don't know that much about you know their target audience per se you don't know whether or not they're running their business as a business or as a hobby like there's so many factors that you're not aware of that can shape the way in which they come up with pricing that i think it's dangerous to um, look at that research and only focus on the price that they're they're charging. So, having said that, <laughs> um, if they're going to do that, yes, you're going to probably need to catfish unless they have their numbers on their site. But I think the the More critical aspect of that research and comparison is really what are they providing within the container of their different offers. So even if you didn't know their particular price point, what's the package? What does package A look like? What does package B look like? And C, etc. I think that's better research.
0: Yeah, super smart. I agree, and I will. I will say that I, since I work with a lot of people in the wedding industry, people tend to be very collaborative. So Suzanne, if I were you. I would probably just post in some Facebook groups in your market and say that you're curious to hear what different people's packages are and what they're offering. Because at the end of the day, like, you don't need a mirror of what other people are charging for this type of thing. I would think that the keys are just not undercutting the market and then also not being way above market if you're not you know, providing like a luxury or a super high-end service. Would you agree?
2: Well, yeah. But I think the key word in what you just said is market, right? So is your market the same as theirs?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs>
2: right. Very true. Because $20,000 for your market may be right, $20,000 for theirs may not, and vice versa.
0: Now, with your prices in place and sales coming in, sales strategist Maria Baer, one of my friends, shares one of our favorite parts about money, which is how to make more of it. Hopefully you also like making more money. If so, you can do it without bringing in any new clients and Maria will show you how to make that happen. So if people want to, you know, start making some more money, like right away, how do we start thinking about that? I know that you have like a few different tips that you want to talk to us about today.
3: Yeah, actually, I'm going to share three tips with you. And what I like to do is I like to look at, you know, there's a lot of money that you can make in your business that you're just stepping over right now. And um, you don't have to go and do heavy lifting by finding new clients, right? So one of, the, one of the things that I talk about with my clients is the easiest person in the world to sell is a current client, right? It's not a brand new client, right? Because if you have already sold them, if they've already become a client and you're in the process of serving them, whether you know, you're know you a wedding planner or you're an accountant and you work with them ongoing or you know some other kind of service provider, um, you've already done the heavy lifting of building trust with them right so the easiest person to go back to is a current client so one of the things that i have my clients do is i'll have them check in with their current clients and you can do this whatever way makes the most sense to you you can email them you can call them up whatever um but you can send them a note and say hey i'd like to check in with you you know um and just see how things are going can we schedule like a virtual coffee date right? You schedule a virtual coffee date. And then the whole idea is really just to check in with them. Um, And obviously this is dependent on like what type of service provider you are. So let's say you're a photographer, for example, um, and you've booked a client and the wedding isn't for another six months. So you sit and you have a virtual coffee date and you're chatting about like the wedding planning and what's going on in your engagement and the world, et cetera, et cetera. And what you want to be listening for is, is, Pain points, you know, things that they're still struggling with that you might be able to help them with, right? Or um, things that you can, you know, additional services that you have that they might need. And the idea is that even though you already sold them, that doesn't mean that their needs have not evolved from the time that they hired you, right? Because almost always people's needs evolve after they hire somebody again, whether you're in the wedding industry or you're in any other creative industry, people don't really know what they need until they start getting into it, right? Like for example, I just hired someone to help me with um, a new website design. There's a lot that I won't know until I get into it with her, you know what I mean? And that's how it is with any client. So it's really natural for you to check in with them and they appreciate it because you're building more trust with them And you're actually offering to help them with something that they might legitimately need help with. And that will help serve them better.
0: Okay. Amazing. Hopefully you love that clip from Maria. Her episode was fantastic. So go check it out. Next, we're going to talk about Our next awesome topic here, as you know, bringing in additional money is great, but it's important to record and also manage it properly. So this is, you know, where we get to the little less fun part. We've got past our revenue. Now we have to talk about bookkeeping. If you aren't managing your cash flow efficiently, you won't get the most out of your income. So listen up. Do I need a separate bank account for my business? Here's the technical answer, if you have a sole proprietorship, you're not legally required to have a business bank account. If you have an LLC or any other formal legal entity, maintaining a separate bank account is one of your few corporate formalities and is required. Either way, having a business bank account is a great idea. It's a good practice to keep your money separated from the outset of your business. It creates good habits. Additionally, separation streamlines whatever bookkeeping system you use. For example, if you set up an account with Wave or QuickBooks, these softwares link to your business account and import the transactions. They begin to auto-categorize them by deduction category. If you have your personal and business money commingled, you'll have to manually sort them yourself. That's no fun. Once you have your business bank account set up, it's time to get your expenses in check, start auto saving for quarterly taxes and paying yourself. Dialing in expenses. First note your monthly business expenses, comb through your bank statements and find your average monthly expenses. To do this, add up everything you have on autopay and make your best estimate as to how much you tend to spend each month. For example, I'm a big course in membership junkie. Between the four memberships that I'm in and all my recurring business expenses like Zoom, Kajabi, Canva, and the like, my monthly recurring expenses are about $1,500. I pay about $500 a month to contractors, maybe 100 a month in business deductible meals, and I'll lump in another $400 for other marketing, ad costs, conferences, travel, and so forth. Thus, I'm totaling my expected monthly expenses to be about $2,000. That's the minimum balance I always try to maintain in my bank account. You may have a business with a high overhead, in which case your monthly expenses may be much greater than $2,000. If you're a newer business owner, you may have much lower expenses. It's all relative. The key is to make sure that your expenses are relatively in line with your income. We all want high profit, Revenue is sexy, but profit, and more specifically the profit that makes its way to your personal bank account, is what leads to the quality of life you're after. Take a good hard look at your current profit. Do you like what you see? Can you make adjustments? Are there expenses you're not utilizing or that might be unnecessary for where you currently are in business? If yes, cut that shit out, increase your profit. It'll give you more money to work with. After expenses are under control, it's time to automate your tax savings. Alrighty, friends. So go set up that business bank account. Trust me when I tell you it will make your bookkeeping that much easier. This is very, very essential. A question that I frequently hear is how to calculate and record cost of goods sold. This is a very specific bookkeeping question. In one of my episodes, I chatted with accountant Keila Hill-Trawick, who breaks down the differences between in- inventory and how to track cost of goods. So listen up to Keyless Tips on that topic. And Kate says, I'm clueless when it comes to quote unquote inventory. I don't know what items are considered supplies, capital, depreciation. I also struggle when I do my town property tax filings because they want to tax furniture, my computer, and other dual items. So I know that's a very loaded question. (laughs) I'm going to simplify it a little bit. And just share that I myself have a hard time explaining what the differences are between supplies, cost of goods, and inventory. So, if you could kind of break that down in as simplest terms as possible, I think that'd be awesome.
4: Yeah. So, think of supplies as what you use to make the thing, right? So, if we use jewelry as an example, the little pliers that you get, um, the the items that you use to put it together I don't know anything about this field, but these <laughs> are the things probably you- <laughs> exactly anything that you're using to actually make the item but doesn't go out with the item when it gets sold, consider that supplies when we think about inventory, inventory is the thing that you're going to sell, so if we're talking about jewelry again. by the time you finish making the bracelet, the bracelet itself is inventory. And all of the components that make that up, the beads, the gold, the string, the metal bar, whatever the things that are that go into this bracelet, you're gonna kind of add all of those up and they sit as your inventory cost. Now, the thing to know about inventory is that it's an asset, it's not an expense. So you make the thing and you kind of store it. You hold it on your balance sheet. And then when you sell it, you get to expense the cost of that item, hence the name cost of goods sold. The way that you're able to take advantage of that expense is that when you sell the bracelet for $100 and it costs you $50 to make it, that $50 is allowed to be expensed as a cost of goods sold.
0: Okay, that's beautiful. I don't think I've ever heard it explained that simply before, so that's really awesome. So basically, when you buy the item, it's inventory. Once that item gets put into a good and the good is sold, then it becomes a cost of good.
4: Right. And I think a lot of people get confused because they want to expense the inventory. They're like, I bought it and I pay for it. So now it's an expense. But the IRS wants to make sure that you're not hoarding inventory and being able to basically call all of it as an expense, even though it wasn't actually up for quote sale.
0: The better your records, the easier everything is come tax time bookkeeping generates a lot of questions. Everyone's businesses are different, which often leads to a lot of very specific questions business owners have about what they can or cannot write off. So in this next clip, Parker Stevenson, uh, co-owner of Evolve Finance, answers your bookkeeping questions. Okay, so first question comes from Jennifer Cooper. And Jennifer asks, for my first year in business... Okay. First year in business and I have a profit loss. How much can I report as a loss? Will I get audited? And is there a limit? So we kind of talked, we kind of touched on this in the last episode, but we'll recap it now.
5: Yeah. So let's just start off by saying you don't get to decide what gets written off. Please, for the love of God, hire an accountant that goes for everybody. And this is something I talk about a lot. And this is just tough love. Like if you are starting a business, you have sunk costs right off the bat. And one of those sunk costs are, is just hiring an accountant. So you don't do something that just makes you regret wanting, like regret starting your business to begin with. Right? So yes, if you have business expenses, let's write them off, but your accountant should be approving all of them. And like we talked about in the other episode, yes, let's write off everything we possibly can, that can be written off, but we also want to make sure we're building a profitable business here. I just want to touch upon that again. The whole reason we're running these businesses is so that sure we get to do, get some tax deductions. There's a few things that are like kind of owner benefits. Maybe you're writing off your cell phone as an expense. Maybe you're writing off a portion of your rent. That's awesome. But if we're writing off so many things that we don't have any profit left over, we're not winning at business. I want everyone here to win at business. So let's find that balance of writing everything off that we can from a business expense standpoint, but let's also make sure we're actually trying to plan uh, to put together a business that's gonna have profit left over, because that's the way you're gonna get paid and that's the way you're gonna build your wealth.
0: As you continue to improve your bookkeeping and paying yourself, you need to own the chief financial officer role in your business. It may sound scary, especially on top of all the other hats you're wearing as a small business owner, but it's one of the most important things you need to do in your business for longevity. The goal is to have a profitable, sustainable business. So in this next clip, accountant Keila Hill-Trawick, who we just heard from a couple of minutes ago, is going to walk us through how to be your own CFO. Can you tell us What a CFO is, what they do, and how that kind of differs from just like general accounting.
4: Yeah, so generally accountants, and this is not all of them, but generally accountants are looking at historical data. And so what they're focusing on is, are your financial statements accurate? Is everything uh, categorized properly? are we being set up for success when it comes to tax preparation? And when it comes to, say, applying for grants or investments, are our books in order? And what a CFO should be doing for you is taking that information and taking it a step further to talk about the future, to be able to make strategic decisions about what's going on with the business, to really be able to use the historical information the baseline foundation as a springboard to be able to say so what do we do with this information and so for us that means not only taking care of the books to make sure that everything's in place and that it's all the i's are dotted and t's are crossed there but then being able to have conversation about goals what does it mean Um, if you hire somebody what does your cash flow look like because I think that's a conversation that we don't have often enough this idea that you could be quote profitable but there's the money is not coming in fast enough to really cover expenses and what we want to make sure is that there's a holistic financial picture so that beyond just the books we're looking at payroll bill payment um, receivables budgets forecasting wanting to look at the whole financial picture for the business to really determine how does the business grow and at the same time maintain what it's doing now without kind of falling into a dip because there were things they didn't pay attention to
0: so i have a hard hitting question for you a lot of accountants do not do any like type of cfo type guidance Do you think it's because it's a skill set that's lacking even among a lot of accountants? Or do you think it's just not something that necessarily fits within a lot of business models?
4: I think it's a combination. I would say as accountants, we're taught that we do really specific things. And so you are kind of driven into these lanes of like, are you a bookkeeper? Are you a tax professional? Are you an accountant that kind of does both of those? But it feels relatively emerging, this idea of consulting or advising beyond that. I think the other thing is a lot of accountants in corporate worlds are doing uh, very time-based things. We do monthly things, we do quarterly things. And so this idea of really talking through the middle um, doesn't come up as often because the assumption is that their clients or their businesses or whoever they're talking to is really just invested in the numbers themselves. I want to see my financial report. I feel like it looks good moving right along and not really being able to fill that gap of like, it's more than just the numbers.
0: Keila gave a ton of great advice, but I know some of you may be screaming, okay, Brayden, that's great and all, but I can't even think about looking to the future because I have back taxes weighing me down and I'm not sure what to do about those. I've been there. I get it. I've worked with a lot of other people who've had back taxes, very, very stressful, not very much fun. You most certainly can come back from them. It doesn't need to be that scary. There are lots of options open to you. And then in this next clip, my guest, who is a tax attorney, Teresa Spates, is going to share how
6: if you've been audited or if you end up owing a balance to the IRS and you're like, I'm not fighting the tax due, like I know I owe that money, then at that point, you're going to be looking at resolution options. How am I going to resolve the debt that I owe? That's all going to be dependent on your assets, your income, and your expenses. So you may not need representation if you're like, hey, you know, I'm going to pay this back in full. I don't have a problem paying the $5,000. I just need to make the payments over time. Pick up the phone call the IRS set up your streamlined installment agreement. It's going to be cover over 72 months. Um, So that's six years you get (laughs) to pay back the debt. There are there is that
0: sorry you can do that over the phone you don't or Mm -hmm. do you have to apply online.
6: You can do it either way. You can do it online or you can call and do it over the phone. Oh, the awesome. online is great um, if you've already received a letter it in the right hand side to have a caller ID number that you use. And you'll just plug that into the IRS website with your name and your information. And once they verify that it's you, then they can go ahead and set you up a payment plan. I think it's like a $34 user fee. If you call, then um, you can set it up over the phone with them as well. They'll always give you the lowest amount that you have to pay over the six years. And that you can also do on your own, as long as you know that you have the funds to pay it back. If you're like, I can't pay this back in six years, like I've done the math, which is literally taking what I owe and divided it by 72, and I can't afford to pay it. That's when you need to get a tax controversy attorney or um, a practitioner is what we call ourselves. Um, So you need to call somebody, hire someone because you're going to need to negotiate with the Internal Revenue Service and try to get you into a payment plan that you can afford. And at that point, it becomes imperative to like, what is your income? What are your expenses? What are your assets? And now we have to fight all of these things with the Internal Revenue Service to prove that you can't afford to make the payment to the IRS. That's when you really need someone.
0: Okay. So now what do you do if you have back taxes and are struggling to save or pay off debt at the same time? Good news, friend, is that you can save money and pay down debt simultaneously. Financial coach Keena Newell shares how you can do both. As we're wrapping up, let's assume that someone, they they do the habit tracker, they go through the spending plan. Maybe they've worked with you. They've done it on their own. How does then that tie in to really like getting into your business finances? Like do, do people often realize like I am making enough. I'm just spending too much or I'm not making enough or they figure out projections on where they need to be to hit that aspirational budget. Like what does that look like for most people?
1: Well, I think on the business side, like the same things that I ask you to do on the personal side to monitor your spending, you have to do it on the business side, right? Like the $10 Canva, the like $14 Acuity, all these like random subscriptions you sign up for because they're only $10. How is that impacting how much money is going out of your business every single month that is taking away from your profit or your ability to pay yourself more and consistently from month to month? So I think however you manage your personal finances will also be how you manage your business finances.
0: Yeah, you can, you, you'll have to pry Canva out of my cold dead hands. It's, I'm, never, <laughs> I'm never getting <laughs> but, rid of that. But
1: right, like you can have Canva, but I guess like I'm thinking too early on in business where you buy a whole bunch of stuff and you think it's going to help you. And then you haven't actually gone back through to audit the things that you have. And so I tell business owners, like, write down everything that you're spending money on, because I, I think we have a mentality that's like, oh, well, that's a tax write-off, so you keep it. Um, and so then you need to go back through your expenses and, like, what do you want to keep, what do you want to revisit, and what do you actually want to cancel?
0: Saving money is not without stress. No one likes to cut expenses, but it's possible to do it without depriving everything from your life. Another one of my good friends, Sarah Hockey, shares with me how she prioritizes savings, which allowed her to crush $70,000 of debt in 36 months. Assume that you're starting from scratch with saving money and paying debt. How would you prioritize between building an emergency fund of $3,000, paying your quarterly taxes, saving your first $3,000 in retirement, and paying down $3,000 in consumer debt. Do you do them all at the same time or do you do them in a particular order?
7: Oh my gosh. I feel like you're serving me up cotton candy right now. This makes me so happy. This is what I would do. First of all, so there's four things on the table. You need to cover your ass with at least some sort of emergency fund or when the shit hits the fan, you're going to get dirty. So- I would definitely save up that three grand as fast as possible. That being said, the IRS is the boss of everything. So if you get behind, or like Braden teaches us to unfuck our businesses, if you fuck up, the IRS has you no matter what, and they will have that emergency fund. So if you are screwing things up with the IRS, that becomes an emergency, and that emergency fund funds need to go directly to making sure you're a-okay there if that's not the case do stay current with your quarterly taxes or brayden can correct me if i'm wrong you're going to get uh penalized and also find room to save that emergency fund now in the whole scheme of your life three grand is not that much money in the you know 80 90 years you'll be alive so save it up as quickly as possible Then let's talk about debt and retirement. So, I would suggest pause on the retirement investing. There are a couple of exceptions. I am not black and white on this, I'm not an all or nothing necessarily, but I personally paused everything and just went ahead and focused on debt. And the reason why is we can really, the human brain can only do one thing at a time unless the thing is mindless. So if you want to focus on something, I would give your brain the space to be able to focus on making sure you are okay with at least a starter rainy day fund and then moving forward towards reducing your debt Investing and always, always, always floating above you is making sure that you're current on your quarterly taxes. Faux show. That's my answer.
0: In addition to current savings, it's important to keep retirement savings in the back of your mind, even if retiring seems a million years away. Listen here for some quick retirement tips. What are our options for? self-employed folks. So if we don't have an employer, what are going to be our best options? We now know that employees have pretty great benefits with 401ks, but what about the rest of us? So there's the solo 401k. Solo 401ks are created for the solopreneur. Makes sense, right? The tax benefits are the same, but a solo 401k allows contributions up to $58,000 per year in 2021. If you have employees, you may not be eligible for a solo 401k. SEP IRA. SEP stands for Simplified Employee Pension. A SEP IRA is designed for small businesses and unlike a solo 401k, works for businesses with employees. It provides the same tax benefit of a traditional IRA, but with greater contribution limits. You can contribute $58,000 or 25% of your compensation, whichever is less. So translation, I did the math for you. If you pay yourself less than $232,000 in a year, your contribution to a SEP IRA is capped at 25% of your compensation. So example... If I pay myself a $100,000 salary, my SEP IRA contribution limit is $25,000, which is still a lot more than the $6,000 for a traditional IRA. A SIMPLE IRA. SIMPLE is an acronym for a savings incentive match plan for employees. I know, I'm glad it has a SIMPLE acronym. I couldn't help myself for that pun. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, Don't hate me. So simple IRAs operate a lot like SEP IRAs and provide the same tax advantages. Uh, Instead of boring you with all the nuanced differences between SEPs and simples, I'll summarize by sharing that simple IRAs tend to have more advantages for small businesses with employees. If you plan to be a solopreneur for some time, a SEP is likely a safe bet. If you have or plan to soon have employees consult with a certified financial planner, about which of these options might be best for you. All righty, friends. So these were just a few of the amazing resources my guests and I shared throughout the Money Series. I hope that you loved all of those. You can check out the full episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, maybe block out some time to go back and listen to each one of those. You're gonna learn a ton, I promise. And remember, as the next step to the Money Series, It's time to truly unfuck your finances. So I'm offering my unfuck your finance course just through tomorrow. So if you're listening to this podcast episode when it releases on March 4th, I I think, then it's open just through tomorrow, Friday, March 5th. You're going to want to sign up. It's going to be amazing. And I hope to see you in the program. Have a good one.